Welcome to Vertical Voice Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Taylor. Today's episode is a bit different. Uh, today's episode is essentially a guest slot with uh, Paul Diffley of Hot Aches Productions interviewing Jimmy Marshall. Anyone who's seen the 2010 film The Pinnacle will probably recognise some snippets of this audio. However, I felt that it would, uh, would be important to try and get the whole interview available for people to listen to at their own leisure. Uh, the film The Pinnacle of uh, directed by Paul Diffley of Hot Aches Productions. He's made some of the, probably the best climbing films available at the moment. The films that he makes, the storytelling is top-notch. The, the scenery is top-notch. The footage is great. Um, the movie The Pinnacle itself features uh, Dave McLeod and Andy Turner trying to sort of recreate Smith & Marshall's legendary week on the bend that they had uh, way back in the early days of uh, kind of winter climbing and ice climbing. Anyway, uh, it doesn't really need all that much of a preamble. It's probably quite a nice one to listen to on a long drive in the car to get a bit of a feel for the history of climbing in Ben Nevis and the the way that uh, climbers who've gone before us climbed. Anyway, enjoy. I want to start by, uh, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about the equipment you were using in 1960 and how you were actually climbing with it. Yeah, well... The equipment was uh, very simple. I mean, we had an ice axe and uh, about two or three pegs, no ice pegs or anything like that, because we, we couldn't get these anyway. And uh, the most important thing was being able to keep yourself warm. You know, so we kept the woolen jerseys close to our skins and the anoraks over. I used an ex-army, US Army sort of kaguli thing with no pockets on it. It was just like a big smock and it was marvellous. And it had wolverine fur around the edge so that it didn't freeze, you know. <laughs> but that's about uh, all we really had, you know. There was a lot of equipment ex-army then at this time. Oh yeah, everything was examined. It used to be a sort of grapevine. Whenever you heard there was a new delivery of ex army gear, everybody it was a hot line, and everyone was down into Leith Walk to the ex army stores for boots. We used to climb with army boots and just put nails in them, you know. And there was no decent climbing boots. But that's 1960. I was getting good boots made by a lorry. You know, I just used to send a, a footprint down to them and they made my boots for years and just on a phone call, you know, wonderful boots. They were very good. So at the time we were doing the really hard climbing, we had, I had very good boots and, and then we had the wee crampons, you know. With this gear, did you actually stay warm and dry or did you just expect to get cold? No, I think we could keep quite warm. Uh, I was never conscious of being frozen, apart from occasional long stands when you were uh, stuck waiting for somebody to go up or come up, you know. But otherwise, your body warmth was pretty good. Because I say, we had good uh, woolen jerseys and all that. We didn't need anything. Ultimately, I got one of these... Uh, down jackets that you could get at Chamonix, but they weren't very good. You know, they're okay for sleeping in up in the Alps, but not at home. Yeah. And how did you use 
I'm interested in how he actually managed to climb with just one axe and, and I mean, what, what was the technique? Well, that was the, th the natural thing to do. I mean, uh, use it as a walking stick as you're approaching on easy slopes and then you, when it became steep, you started to whack the, the slope. And you, you would just sort of cut a slash across the snow. You wouldn't make a step, just a slash for the edge of your boot nails so you could go quickly. And when it got steep, you just sort of cut decent steps. You know, it was important. They were always sort of pigeonholing one above the other. And that's sort of step thing. And then you'd get a, a knee to rest on. And you would have the... You used, you, most of the time when you're on the steeper stuff, you cut two-handed. Not one. Ah, uh, right, OK. Because it conserved your energies much yeah. better. So you would cut a series with two hands and then move up them, make a decent sort of standing step again and then do that. And all that could be done very quickly. Excellent. Uh, do you still have your ice axe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I could bring it for you if you want. Yeah, okay, that'd, that'd be you great, sure? actually, yeah. Is, is it handy? Oh, yeah, it just uh, it hangs on my wall in uh, my den. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be great, yeah. Thanks. A Simond, I think it is, yeah. But the shaft was made by my brother Ronnie, who was a shipwright, and he used to take pick handles and shave them down to this specified profile of very flat, so you could sort of, in, in cold, you could do that without ease, you know, you never slipped or slid or anything of that nature. And that's it. Excellent. Yeah. That's not as heavy as I expected it to be, actually. It's... No, no, don't, you don't need uh, yeah. weight to... Give me an idea, what, what was the, the climbing scene like in, in 1960, you know? Oh, incredibly vibrant and powerful. I mean, you had the, the Aberdonian, Aberdonians, you know, Brooker and uh, Petey before his death mm -hmm. were wonderful. I mean, Eagle Ridge is a classic hard climb and all the other sort of things that they made on other similar surrounding mountains were... They were always to the fore, you know, in reporting great new climbs. So we thought we must get our sort of pep, you know, get up and go sort of thing. So they were a bit of an encouragement. We had, we always had the old-fashioned climbing of Glencoe, which was, nobody did very much modern stuff there, I mean, until we started later on. But the classics, like Crowberry Gully and Crowberry Ridge and North Buttress and all that, Ravens, just, they were mind-bogglingly good routes. And it was, we didn't need to go anywhere, we just could enjoy doing climbs like that repetitively or go and do it down the glen, you know. So we were never short of ice climbing, but eventually we thought we must go abroad a bit more and we went to the the hills and 
further north, like Craig Meggie, and mm. investigated them and the Ben. We all knew what we wanted to do on the Ben, but uh, it was much uh, after our great... We were fully experienced with climbing from, I think, uh, I would think from about 1950. You know, we had full experience of what to do in snow and ice, but we didn't know what to do at that time. We really began to think about it. Sorry? The great thing about that particular time, you know, about mm -hmm. the 50s, just after the 50s, was that um, we had bus meets going and but loads of people, there was 20 to 30 people would go on a bus at a time and then they'd just be dropped off at say Glencoe and then they would all disappear and melt into the mountains, you know, and then you sat waiting for everyone coming back before you could move off. But it's just... A public bus or a private no, bus? No, it was a hire, they used to have a hire from Edinburgh which would take us, and it was one a month. So there was a regular flow and there's a great exchange of information, a great amount of banter and very social, very different from nowadays when two guys get into a car and buzz away off to the hills and never see anyone, they just speak to themselves. You were forced into wonderful conversations with guys that had just come from the army and hated authority and they were all there, you know, just giving you a real buzz. So the weekends were very, very dynamic. Do you think that's the transport issue? Do you think that's one of the reasons why the, the club structure was so important back then? Yes, that's true. I mean, uh, clubs don't really have a great meaning other than for passing information to one another, you know. But then it was a very sociable thing. And clubs, we used to entertain the Glasgow clubs in Edinburgh and we'd go boozing with them in Glasgow and this is the sort of affiliations that grew up between the, the groups. I mean the Lowman Mountaineering Club is a famous Scottish club, you know, and it had huge memberships and a lot of the, the Lowmans used to be with us when we would meet in Glencoe, so there was always parties and especially in King's House and places like that. Yeah. It's a super sociable thing. And tell me about the Craig Do. How would you describe them? If some, imagine someone's never heard of them. You know, how would you describe them as a club or a group of people? Well, they're they're amazing in this quality of their climbing ethics. You know, that that's was started by the guys who started the club. I mean, some of them were great hikers. They used to leave Glasgow. You know, from the trams or the buses if they could afford it and walk to Glencoe and places, you know, before they could get the climbing they wanted. And then eventually they would get lorries to bring them up and all, you know, so they had all that sort of thing. So the clubs, very important. And what about, like, was there, like, rivalry between, say, the Craig Dew and the SMC? Oh, no, I think they... Craig Dew were recognised as superior rock climbers and probably hooligans and uh, they, were more, they largely went into skiing in the 50s. They, they built most of the ski things in Glencoe and, you know, there was a job for them and there were 
up there skiing most of the time. But every now and again they would sort of break out and you had great times when uh, we, they used to just suddenly decide to go a moonlight jog along the Onahegach. And we used to be there as well, we'd all trotting up and down, you know, cloudy night, the moon hiding behind a cloud occasionally, and you've, you've no torches, you go, whoa! Great night, great camaraderie, you know, with people. And that's how I got to know them. They were just in their Jacksonville. And I used to always be climbing where they were climbing a little bit, like my friends, and gradually we got to use Jacksonville, you know, as a place and without being turfed out. And it was nice. I'd, as young students, I remember uh, Bill, my part, my regular partner climbing in these days, Bill Cole. We were staying in the Ville when it was peeing wet and they suddenly one of the, the big members, Bill Smith, a great, a wonderful man, you know, and he came in and sort of said, oh, this is not your style, is it? What you did here, you know, but it just sort of moved over and we settled down. But when he was ready to go back for the weekend, because we had longer, he just gave us all the food that he'd left, you know, his tins of this and that and stuff. And it was classic of the attitudes, very sociable, mm. but uh, highly efficient climbers. Mm. As a, a kind of social demographic, you were very different to other members of the Craig Do. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, in that you were f from the East for a start. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, very much a, a middle class professional. Mm -hmm. But you seem to span, you know, the, the establishment of the SEC <coughs> and also the more working class of the. Yeah, well, uh, we, John McLean, because uh, a lot of the Craig do went down to Antarctica as employment. And John McLean, the great white hope of the Craig do, was a, he had his hair dyed, bright, bright sort of blonde. And he was this great tall figure, you know, incredible character. And so he, he was naturally driven to us. And we used to climb a lot together. And then he asked even if he could go to the Alps with us in 1959, which he did. But he used to organise visits between clubs, between Edinburgh and Glasgow. And you'd make great parties with uh, all the wee clubs in Edinburgh, you know, the squirrels and these guys. And so again, it was very social. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the famous week, uh, and uh, I want to know how that week came about. Because <coughs> would it not be rare for you to have a week off in February? No, I always, I had at that time for the last the previous two or winters, I had started to pick up friends to go and climb in the winter and take a winter week. So that that was it, and we went. We had great fun. We, that's when we did things like up, going up to Loch Nagar and then over to Craig Maggie and and then around the Glen and so on. It was during that, these weeks, but the, the the week we're referring to was we. I I was I, I sort of 
socially passed around that I was looking for a partner to, to get a week off. And uh, I was looking as I might not find one because people are employed and have to work. You know? And then Wheaky uh, came out of the blue and said, could he go? And I said, well, of course, I thought that was marvellous. I didn't think he would ever do that because he was so independent and everything had to be done his way in terms of what he wanted to do. And he had the right because he had the ability to do anything he wanted, you know. So that's how it happened. And we just headed off, you know, climbing and enjoying it. Had he climbed anything much before? On the crags, we climbed together. You know, in Edinburgh crags, we uh, have a sort of training gym up there where we used to go. You were, you were only allowed to climb there till about 10 o'clock before they were chased off by the parkies. You know. In fact, once before that, once to reverse, there was a group of... Uh, Slessor was taking a group of the Everest mountaineers around the park and they were all climbing in this wee quarry when the parkies arrived. And they, they all climbed up the quarry as they do and started to run away. And then the parkie came around and tried to catch them. And they were brushing all these dignified, you know, John Hunt and people like that were all scrambling through the, the wind bushes trying to get away before they got their names in the police books, you know. That was funny. But he, when they were... The last guy, when the last guy had escaped from them, the parkie shouted, You need no bother. We've got your car numbers. <laughs> but you know, nothing was heard of it, you know. But the consternation in um, John Hunt's face was amazing. <laughs> yeah. I read somewhere that uh, about this time, you, you actually... I've got the, I've got a quote that says, "I was going to get married, start a business, and to hell with climbing." That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I want to ask you, so, you know, how were you feeling about climbing at this point? I mean, were you, were you still as passionate, or were you? Were you oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. I was. I was passionate about it, but I had to stop and start making a living and a life, you know. And I was getting married. So. And, I, and we used to, Big, Big Smith and Craig Dew and I were often lying. We'd say, we must give this up. You know, we'd been pissing for days and so on. Why, why are we sitting here? Why don't we just go and enjoy ourselves working? And well, There was always this sort of banter about it. Yeah. Hmm. And obviously in that week you did lots of new routes. Do you, why, do you think, why do you think you did so many new routes as opposed to repeats? Well, because we, I mean, I, I, I knew the bend like the back of my hand. And there was no point in doing routes that had been done. We should just do new ones, you know. And the, the whole thing about the, the ascent of point five, the way it was first done, was absolutely horrifying. I mean, we thought that was really despicable, you know, behaviour. But people seemed to accept it, you know. Can you expand on that? Can you say why you felt it was wrong the way it had been climbed? Because they were, they were using pegs and all the rest of it to get up the thing. I mean, that's terrible. And you say, when you say using pegs, you don't mean for protection. You're using pegs for progression. They were using pegs 
for advancement and protection. But I mean, when we climbed uh, 0.5 Robin, we didn't have any protection at all all the way up that climb. We knew the conditions were good, but uh, we just took sort of snowballers, you know, and things like that. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, people get tied up, but it can take as much time to get protection as it does to do the climb, you know. There's a lot of that in it. So, was it an ethical thing, or was it just the way you preferred to climb? It wasn't any ethical thing, it's just that's the way we climb, because we're so used to climbing without security. Remember, two or three wee runners for maybe five or six years of climbing, and then the whole gear shop thing came into the scene, and people started to have tons of it. So what sort of gear did you have on you then? What sort of, you know, hanging off your, I was going to say harness, but do you mean, did you, what did you have around your waist? No, I, I, the rope was tied around our waist, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, just up the bowline and that's it. A couple of half hitches. And uh, two or three nylon slings. We loved when tape, tapes came in because they were very good, you know. They were a big advancement and we, we consider that ethically acceptable. <laughs> yeah. So how many pegs did you have with you then? About one to three sometimes. They were belay things, you know. So you'd have those for the belay and, and nothing for the climb itself? That's right. I can, some of the... The pictures I've got can show you just a clear rope swaying our way up. In fact, on that, uh, even in the later days, you know that a trapeze climb on the west face of Onachtu? The first pitch is quite a sort of steep, bubbly wall. Well, it's a big crack one, but when you get up to the next bit, there's a big bubbly wall. And because we didn't use many runners, I only had one from the, the ledge after the main crack and I was a hundred feet up the climb with one runner in between. And, the, and my partner who was coming up the bubbly wall came off and I was way above him. And the thing was, he fell off, you know how you come off a steep wall, flying out. And he soared in a great arc across the abyss, you know. Wonderful. That's why we called it trapeze, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I, I, I've only just realised just how little equipment you actually had. Well, it, it seemed quite a lot. I mean, you know, even around there, there's a, I think there's about three or four things on there, you know, around my neck. But that's at old age, you know. And how, was, how would you describe your, your partnership with, with uh, Robin Smith at this stage? Were you, were you equals or was there a, oh, how was the relationship? He, he was undoubtedly becoming the best climber around. I mean, he had this incredible taste for finding good routes. Although he buckled a lot of good routes that boys were, you know, like Wee Willens, for example, and everybody else. He knew he had a, a network of good clients, but... 
No, he, he was a, a very fine natural climber and he did not resort to bloody nonsense of special gear to get up them, you know, he was good. And, uh, and what was your relationship, how do you relationship, what was the dynamics of your relationship? Just like an old man and his son, you know, kind of thing. Really, I, mean, I wasn't that old, but it was a kind of, I, I looked after all the young curry lads, you know, and we were great characters, great climbers too. And it became a kind of big brother, I say, you know. And everything I said, of course, was taken as verbatim, you know, and I'd tell them what to do and where to climb and they, until they got enough themselves. But uh, just a sort of brotherly overseer. Mm. Mm. But when you were climbing together, you were equal partners, though, I imagine. Was that right? Yes, that's true. There was no difference. And, I mean... He could go. He would go far further than I would ever have gone. He did, in fact, go beyond where I would go, or could go. And it's inevitable, and youth should succeed beyond old age. You know. Okay. Right, I'm going to talk about. Uh, I've got a list of, of the climbs you did that week, actually, and I'm just going to mention the name of the climb. And if there's anything that you want to tell me about it, whether it's you know anything. Yeah. Where just where you can describe the route or describe what happened when you when you climbed it, uh, I'd be really interested to hear. Mm. So we'll start with uh, the Great Chimney. Anything to say about that? Yes, we we were just standing in. You know, we hadn't gone for that. We just were standing in the opening of the observatory gully, main gully, and we thought, what will we do? You see, and then I think it was uh, we said we would let's do that chimney. Well, I mean, I knew the chimney from the guidebook days and or introduction or writing about it. So I said, that's fine. And I, I just went first. And it was, uh, there was big sort of icy bits and all the rest of it. It's a typical chimney, but you bridge, you, you have to be dead cunning in chimneys and places like that. You know, you can use all sorts of funny wee techniques that, keep you there and don't stress your muscles. It's always a lot overhanging, but that's that kind of climb. Now, there was this was one, one bit at the top where I had to get a wee sort of baby poof-poof nylon sling over to get a foothold to get up past it, you know. So it's a while swinging about this and trying to push it on. <laughs> and that was about all. After that, it was up. But it was a good, good starter for us. Good start to the week. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, what about Minus Free Gully? How was that? That was, uh, that was a disappointment. We expected much more, you know. But uh, it just went straightforwardly. There was a big, there was a wonderful, I've got a picture where you have a beautiful tracery of sheets of ice hanging down and the ropes so badly managed, it's a great spiral of the doubled rope going all the way up. There's no sign of anything else, you know. And that was all, we just sort of battered steps up it and off we went. So you basically disappointment, it was, it was easier than you, you thought it would be? We expected greater competition, you know, but it, it went 
surprisingly straightforward and, you know. Excellent. Okay, uh, day three, Smith's Root. Pete? Smith's Root. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. That is a great climb. That was, that was a case where he stepped ahead of what was going at the time. And it was sheer damn perseverance because, you know, he was in hefty trouble, but he was good and he was very strong. He could hang on to anything, you know, but it was just a, a real battle of his wills. And all I had to do was follow up. <laughs> <laughs> Did that take him a long time? How long was he on that for? Yes, it took far too long on it. Yes. That's what probably tired him out, you know. But the the big, uh, you know, the, the big, the main overhanging part high up was quite uh, well. It was very steep, and he had to he had to sort of shovel out holes so he could get an arm to keep him in, you know, like this. <laughs> so there was a series, sort of, a series of wee holes like rabbit burrows into this bulging ice, you know, which was a sort of foamy kind of, not serious ice, it was just snow ice, you know, very fine, good stuff. And he was holding, he was like holding... Yeah, that's right, you get, you get your hand in, I showed him that technique earlier on in the holiday. You, if you're in a bad place, you just batter a big hole with the axe and get your arm right in and then do that and you can lean away out and reach over the other bits, you know. And get the next hole. Excellent. I've never heard of that technique before. No. Well, I mean, I guess with two axes, that's that's the sort of thing that's lost. Well, you don't need it? it now, do you? No, that was a Jimmy Marshall technique. That was used a great deal in some of these uh, steep balls. Mm. Does it have a name? No. No, just... <laughs> My secret, I wasn't going to divulge it then. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd all be climbing them. <laughs> Okay, the next day was uh, Observatory, observa oh, sorry, uh, Observatory, yes, I should have trouble with that word, Observatory, Buttress. Yeah, that's yes. right. Yes. Well, we thought that we should just have an off day and do one of the classical routes. I mean, you always believed that old Rayburn had climbed it, because he was a phenomenal guy, you know, a marvel of his time. But so we just sort of thought, well, we'll take an easy day and we just charged up it it was it was excellent very enjoyable but it went very quickly you know and, but we always started late because Smith would sleep in a bit and, and I would wait for him to cook some of the food and all this and that. so we sort of gamesmanship you know and we'd start out about one o'clock or something and finish in the dark we love climbing in the dark I always love climbing in it's not dark, you know. You're at, if you leave, give your eyes a chance, the irises open up, and it's amazing what you actually see. And same, we we do that or did that when we used to go up the Nevis track to the hut. We used to avoid putting torches on once we got through the bad bogs, which were at the bottom, which you don't have to do now. But you just followed that, you know. That, and, just leave, let your eyes see it, and, and you see enough light, and then see it, and in winter snow, when you've got white and ice, you see 
equally well, not as well as bright daylight, but you can see all you need to see in terms of the ice and what, how good or how bad it is. Do you think this was, other people in the hut would, would look at you as strange for lying in bed and, well, not, not yourself, but, you know, for starting so late, was that seen as odd? No, no there were people in the hut, uh, but um, it went on all the time. You know, we were always uh, lying in late and getting out. Climbing at night was a pleasure. Uh, climbing in the evening would be more accurate, wouldn't it? Uh, sort of climbing evening and then in by the moonlight and so on. But there was another fine moon at that period as well. So it's very beautiful and much better than having lights and certainly better than getting up early in the morning, you know. But the chain result of not getting up meant you'd, you had to do it. Excellent. Tell me, tell me something about uh, the routine of the, these days. Were you, you've already started to with the late start, but how was, what was the typical routine? Like who would get up, who would make the tea, that kind of thing? Usually just sort of uh, rotated, you know. I mean, the important thing was always to have a brew available, you know, and pass that over to whoever stays in their bunk and while he cooks uh, the breakfast, you know. Here's these bad diet things like big fry-ups and bangers and all that, a big plate of porridge. And, <laughs> and did he take food with you on the climbs or did he just eat in the hut and then climb all day? And night, yeah. and come back and eat. There is a thing which we, which I did. I used to boil a couple of eggs in the morning and, and stick them in my pockets when we were going up the hill. Now eggs retain their heat for an amazing amount of time. They do as hand warmers as you walk up the hill, and then when you're ready to start, you just cuddle your eggs, you know, and then eat them, and off you go. <laughs> Fantastic technique. That's really good. I've never heard that before. No. Well, you see, the thing about it is, it's the ethos that bothered us. We had to do things in sympathy with the mountain and all the rest of it. Sounds a bit highfalutin, but you had to feel that you were acting properly in everything you were doing on these climbs. You know. So it's, can you, what do you mean by you have to be in sympathy with the mountain? What, what do you mean by that? Well, not batter pegs into it and all this sort of stuff. You know, you have to... It's a, it's a, That damages the rocks and all the rest of it. I mean, I've done as many as a lot of people, but it's always a regret to actually do it, you know. So it's about having respect for the mountain. Respect for the mountain, yeah. yeah. By God, we respect the mountains, all right. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, carry on through the list. Uh, next one I've got down is, is point 0.5 gully, which we've already talked about a little bit, but I'd like to hear a bit more. You can... Yes. <clears throat> well, I mean, again... I used to go out regularly to that climb in the winter, just look at it, judge it, 
and walk away. I never wasted my time going into it unless things were right. And that, that was just experience, you know. So I never failed on that climb. But when we went up that day, it was right. And we were right. And that was it. Because it was straightforward. At, uh, one of the difficult pitches, I, I don't know the numbers of them, I think number four or five, I was in the middle of this overhang when a bloody great spindrift avalanche came pouring down. It was really thundering down, you know. And I was being battered away in this and trying to stay on. And it was a real struggle, you know. But was, it, was it coming between you and the rock? It was, it was tending to, you know, firstly because of the volume, it was that. Then as the volume reduced, it came between and starting to push you out from the water and then just trying to hang on with your axe. <laughs> and that was the only thing that bothered us on, or me on the, the hill. The rest of it was straightforward. And this, at this point, you, you, this is your, that's your fifth day on the, on the mountain. Well, I'll take that's your right. word for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, were, you feeling, were you feeling tired at this point? No, no. Very fit. I mean, really, remember we'd had a, each of us separately had had a winter's climbing already in the bag, you know, a lot of things. So this, we were very fit. In what way fit? Do you mean, do you mean climbing fit? Muscularly, or? mentally, everything, you know. Yeah. yeah. So the next is, is your day off. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> so well, it was drizzly and it was wet, you see, and unpleasant. So we thought, well, we're not going to climb on that because it'd be sort of wet, drizzling snow falling on the cliff, you know. So we said, let's go for a walk. And that was it. It was quite a walk, though, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it isn't really. I mean, it's, uh, we did that walk. You know, a number of times, not necessarily in the winter, but in the spring and autumn and beautiful times, you know. It's a fine range of hills and it was just great to get free and not have to be hanging around in the bloody gullies and all the rest of it, you know. So it was, it was kind of like a contrast to the... Absolutely. Climate. Again, it's, um, it's tuning yourself, you know, yeah. and refreshing yourself. So it was a lovely, it was a great experience. It was, we were desperate for a pint as well, you know. So you went to Fort William for a drink? Yeah, we, uh, I think we were lucky and got a bus from where we were, I've forgotten the name of the place now, into the fort and had a couple of pints or something and it was great, you know. And then we were thought we'd better get back up the hill again. And that's when we uh, were coming out when Quiki had said, I'll take the dominoes. And I, I honestly did say to him, don't be so effing daft, you know. Leave the bloody things. And unbeknown to me, he hadn't left them. Brought them out and then this car came, this car came whistling towards us. And I said, Christ, it's police. And, and Smith said, I've got the dominoes. I said, 
throw them over the wall. <laughs> I don't know if he did, but uh, we were taken to the police station. And what, what, what were the police like? Yeah, they were they were enjoying themselves. They were really quite nice and funny, you know. But the guy had lost about a lovely sense of dominoes, you know, in the period of a couple of months or something, and he was fed up. And so they said, well, keep me in until the last bus goes. And I said, you know, the rotten suds. He says, all right, when you go then. But your name's in the book. <laughs> <laughs> And then back up the hill. Yeah, sure. Excellent. The next day you uh, you climbed uh, Pickett's route. Yeah. Um, that must have been quite hard, was it? For the... It's been a favourite uh, ambition of mine for a while. Yeah. Forgotten where it is now, please. Where about is it again, Pickett's? It's, uh, oh, yes, yeah, round the corner, way up the long thing, isn't it? On comb buttress. Yeah. Yeah. That. Not much on there, neither, is there? Not many routes on that part. There's a lot now, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good, but there's nothing. I mean, Smith, he, he, had, he had done his uh, tower face of the column, didn't he? I'm not sure, actually. I think he had, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we just wandered our way up the long slab and then up the wall, yeah. But then as a guide writer to the mountain, I knew all the, the holes in there, you know. So we did, didn't have any problem with that. And uh, on your final day, Orion Direct. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an amazing climb. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was a lovely idea. I mean, we had always sort of... I mean, Robin had been there and tried to do it before, you know, but he was a bit naive or young then, I think, when he did that. It was about a year earlier. But he knew about that because... Uh, had been let slip by my young curry friends at one point, you know. But I think he would have worked that out anyway himself. And we were jointly interested in doing it, so it was great. Uh, it was just wonderful climbing, you know. Like I was saying to you earlier, you've got your ice axe, you know, and your crampons, and you just sort of... When you stop, when you stop walking and start climbing, you know you just sort of do, 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 <laughs> as fast as you can up the slope, and then the lovely bit where you went round that the, the rib, you know, and that beautiful, and that was when the evening sun had gone down, you know, and it was just getting beautiful and sort of greeny colours, you know, and cutting ice and that, and then straight up again, and. Once we got straight up, it was we were into the mists, so it was quite gloomy, and we were climbing by the feel of things, you know. And let's um, just have pause a sec while the, the phone rings. You okay? You don't need a glass of water or anything. You don't, you don't need a glass of water or anything. No, you're fine. Okay. I'm talking. Okay. Okay. The, the machine takes over yeah. now. Yes, so they, the final sort of pictures of that wall, you know, are splendid. And we had we had just expected to go sort of straight up, but there was a lot of avalanching drift under the steeper part, you know, and it was quite 
dicey. So we're concerned about that. So instead of sort of just doing a wee sort of traverse, we thought, well, forget that. We'll go straight up. And there was this lovely groove and another one, you know. So I just went up, cutting steps into it. It's just sort of auto automatic, you know, you chopping away at that. And then uh, there was a huge sort of cornice overhanging that one. So I thought, I better go over, so I had to traverse into the next. That was across one of these vertical granite slab things, you know, with about an inch of ice on it. So I was cutting fancy wee holes in it and tiptoeing across this, you know, and then round into the corner. And there, lo and behold, was lovely ice again. So it was just snow ice, you know, just step and it just up and over and just sort of missed. You know, and lovely snow and horizontal, you know, it's just beautiful. Do you ever walk to the, do you ever walk to the summit when you did these routes? Or do you, did you ever walk to the summit of Ben Nevis after doing these routes? Or did you just finish up the cliffs? And... Well, we were always on the summit anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, uh, to identify where we were, each, you know, in the kind of occasions, you just identified the summit. And took your bearing for number three gully, you know, and down. The thing about Orion, I've heard it be described as it's like more, more like an alpine route yes. than a Scottish winter route. Yes. Why do you think that is? What, what, what gives it those alpine characteristics? Just the scale and the open face nature of it. it. I was a great admirer at the time and inspired to some extent by the famous Welsenbach and the, you know, he, the German climbers or Austrian climbers. And they did, they did some fantastic ice, mixed ice faces. And I was full of admiration for the things they'd done. I never had the opportunity to do them. But my pal Carrington, he's been over there and has had a go at them. And he expressed them as being very fine and very, very difficult. And done years and years before anything we did. So were precursors to our enthusiasm. Mm. Now, Orion Direct's got a great reputation nowadays. It's seen as one of the best. Yeah, I mean, we're very, very pleased to have made these routes, but we were going to make them anyway. You know, they were all there, ready to be taken. Now, uh, obviously, this, this week has kind of become famous. I know I've heard you, you downplay it before. But why do you think it kind of captures people's imagination? Why do you think people see it as an important week? Yeah, I think a lot of it was the fact it was written down as an adventure, you know, and not a record of an ascent, really. And it was fun. And I think people maybe caught that enthusiasm. Certainly the generations of uh, really good climbers now have a lot of that attitude, you know, they go climbing, but they have the gear for it, but they don't know what they're missing because the business of really identifying with your mountain with as little as possible is the whole philosophy of my way of climbing, you know. A kind of pure, a pure uh, ethic. Yeah, I mean, I've used pegs now, but... I would never use them to benefit advancement or anything, you know, they're terrible. <laughs>
Maybe I've climbed to some of these peg roots in the Alps and things and they're just bloody awful, you know. So out of all those roots, is anything that you think any of those roots you're particularly proud of, do you think? Yes, I think uh, things like um, the Loch Nagar Gully, um, Parallel B, and the Smith Gully on Craig Meggie are my favourites. I mean, these were glorious. And we couldn't have done any of these climbs if we didn't have Tyso and his motor car. You know, and it's amazing. And he, he knew nothing about climbing, and yet he would come with me on these and make first ascents of these routes. You know, and all you had to do was to tell him to hold the rope. And when he got nervous, I would give him a wee pitch to lead up, and that would settle his nerves. You know, yeah, yeah. and then off, and that was it. And then just say, hold the rope. <laughs> <laughs> But he was, a, he was a wonderful driver, and the, the things we had to do in winter to get to the hills with Tyson's car would never have been done if he hadn't been there. That is a fact, you know. They would have had to wait another 20 years or something for... So on the, on the week in question, uh, how, did you, how did you travel to... That, that was by... I yeah, well, that's where uh, Smith went over the the Carmorgerigaret uh, for exercise and down into Glen Nevis and then over the Mamores onto uh, Glen Coe. But he said that you know, as Jimmy's getting old, he went down and went by bus <laughs> <laughs> or something to that effect. 6th of February, the, the Great Chimney, Tower Ridge, 8 hours, J.R. Marshall, R.C. Smith, through Leeds. So what do you think of that then? For a week? Sounds alright. <laughs> <laughs> I know you said before, it's that you described it as a holiday. Is that is that how you saw it, as a holiday? Oh yes, yes, nothing else but, I mean, climbing was for enjoyment, you know. I mean, we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't enjoy it. Yeah. I noticed, uh, I read in some reports that uh, Robin kept dropping your axe. Yes, so, that's right. I mean, he was clumsy, you know. I mean, he kept big gloves on all the time and tended to, even with this quality axe, you know, still tended to slip out of his hands. Okay. So you know obviously you know Dave and, and Andy are gonna try and repeat this list of, of climbs. Beg your pardon. Uh, Dave and Andy are gonna repeat this list yes. you know, in, yes. in a week in the same time yeah. uh, how do you think they'll get on? Oh so do it no bother, I think. <laughs> I mean people are much healthier and more capable now than we were. We were all amateurs, you know, just sort of enjoying ourselves. But these guys are professionals, aren't they? Yeah. So, any advice you'd give them on it? No. No, that would be rude. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd never give anyone advice on climbs. 
even when someone asks us where our route goes on the mountain, we never do it. I said, if you're up there, you should know where you're going. Okay, good. So, let's talk about the, the Ben in general. I mean, do you think there's something special about climbing on the Ben as opposed to other winter climbing venues? Yes, I mean, uh, I mean, I I did one of the early guides, you know, simpler version guides, uh, where we didn't have to have so much detail and information. So I climbed a great deal on Ben Nevis, uh, but it took me about six months, six years before I actually produced a guidebook. You know, but, uh, I have a. It's winter that I will love it. Actually, can you stop the phone? <laughs> Sorry, but it's just. No, no. We could have shoved that one through there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you're saying about the bedding winter, I think. Yes, I, I. My real love of Ben Nevis is the winter. It's always been a magnificent place. It's so wild and savage, you know, it's just great. Uh, summer. Um, I'm a bit ambivalent about summer and Ben. There's some lovely rock climbs, but there are wonderful rock climbs all over the place, you know, in summer. But uh, the great, the great buttress and the uh, Orion face is all very, you know, really good. And everywhere in between now, there's tremendous rock climbs, but I still don't get a buzz, you know. I enjoy getting to the top of Bed Nevis in any weather and any time. But winter is my favourite of that mountain, my favourite memories of the mountain. Why do you think that is? Do you think what's, what's more powerful in winter? Why do you think that is? Why, why winter? Because it's, it's totally alpine. It's better than the Alps because it's got more beautiful colours. In, in the sky and everything, and it's full of wonderful scenes that you can never envisage, sort of moonlight and mountains and then shadows, and then morning dawns where the whole mountain just lights up like a big wedding cake, you know, and it's just, it's beautiful. Do you think it has a remoteness about it, even though it's it's only, what, four hours to Fort William or something? From, yeah, do you, do you it certainly has, yes. It's, it's, it's different from most of the other mountains, but it's also twice as big as any of the other mountains, and I'm talking in sheer mass, you know. I mean, don't forget that it's all of Glen Nevis, as well as the Great Crags, you know, and it, it's... It's an adventure. Any time you go there, would not, you know, it's just it would wouldn't be a disappointment in winter. Summer, it's becomes a bit mundane, you know. And do you think there's something special about the CIC hut as well? No, no. no. I, mean, I don't. I'm not fond of the CIC hut. I used to. Well, I was. A, I think I. Controlled the use of the hut at one point. It was very good for people getting into the mountain, 
but I never, I never particularly liked it or the changes they made to it. Uh, I would prefer if they'd built something more in kind of relationship to the modern crush and got further down in one of the flat parts just below the hut. But that's long, I've long said that, you know, I don't think anyone will ever do it because they're just spoiling the present old hut, you know. Do you think Scottish winter climbing is important on our kind of international mountaineering stage? Yeah. You know? And if so, why, why, what, what gives it its, its gravity? Well, I think uh, there's, this, uh, there's two Aberdonian guys who went over and did these, and sort of, uh, what's his name, Carrington, I think, they did the Jarras Couloirs, and the Aberdonian lads did the very fine winter climb on the Charas and uh, a lot of good guides have come over to Scotland in winter to climb. You know you have these special meetings of special climbers, I don't know what the they call International meets. Yeah, and they, although they're all, they can climb everything, they still think it's a wonderful mountain. That's good. And why? Because it is it is held in in high respect around the world. You know, I've spoke to climbers from Canada, you know, and they've read all about the history of climbing on the Ben. You know, and and even the, you know, they live, this guy lives in the middle of the Rockies, you know, in, in Banff. Yet he's excited about coming to see Ben Nevis and climb on Ben Nevis. It sort of should because I think the climbing on Ben Nevis is better than on the Rockies. You know, I mean it is. I mean. It's just like in winter in the Canadian Rockies, I think. It's just like being in the Alps, you know, and the Alps don't even compare with the unique qualities of Scottish climbing because it's the whole texture of ice and snow vary radically from day to day, from week to week. You don't know what you're going to get, but you can get some amazing stuff which you can climb anywhere and other times it's a toil just to get off the ground, you know. So it's a great arena for ingenuity and working out what you have to do to achieve something. You know, I, I believe Nevis deserves a great reputation and we did start we recovered the, the quality of Welsenbach and all these guys. We, we brought them back to the fore to make people interested in enjoying climbing and ice climbing. So that's done because of the Ben. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I'll ask you about uh, like climbing friends now, really. Uh, what do you think special about friendships which are you know, forged on the rock, you know, or on the mountain? Well, second to none, really. I mean, uh, it's one of the things that I enjoy most is the quality of friendships achieved in meeting and climbing with people. It's just wonderful. You know, they trust them with your life. 
not you don't do it necessarily in the mountain, but the friendships are lasting and long, and they, they're there, and you know they're always going to be friends. I, I, I agree fully. My longest friends are all climbers. You know. Yes. But why? What is it? Do you think that makes these friendships last? Where you know people you work with, you might you might be good friends with them when you're working with them, but then you change jobs and you probably you know. Sure. But we've, you know, there's climbers I'm still in contact with who I'm not who I don't. You know, they live in different cities, but I know I'll always be in contact with them. What is what is it? Do you think that 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 bonds people? Well, it's because of the the adventure, I think. You have the adventure, you have the danger and all the aspects and the joy of great successes that you have from climbing. You know, your achievements, they're only your personal achievements, they're not achievements, you know, to boast all over the place. You just love the fact that you've got friends, that you gave so much and got so much from making and climbing all over Scotland. It's a... It's a it's a very enduring thing. I mean, I have old buddies of 93 and all the rest of that I go and see, you know, that used to be my climbing partners and in the old days. and Lovely. Trust. A great deal of trust. I mean, there are crooks and charlatans in climbing society, but, you know, the degree of trust, it must have been like... The guys who were in these great wars in the trenches, they all learned how to co coexist and understand one another, you know? And it's to a lesser degree that, but it's the same sort of thing. You, you face the dangers and you get to understand the feelings of others. I mean, uh, all my... Uh, all my climbing people, I mean, the sad thing is I've lost a few of them, not through climbing, but they've all gone and left, you know, and, it's, and these are a great uh, loss because they were such good friends, big early Moriarty. He's a prince among men. It's just tremendous, but he died of pleurisy. Crazy, you know. But he was he was a superb young man, and you had Dougal, who was a, a real sort of hooligan, you know. But he was a great climber, and he was great fun. And we used to take them. Uh, they used to join us for Christmas, and they'd come in or New Year's, and they'd, they'd wreck the joints, you know. You'd go in with about five or six of these guys in glasses and come into people's houses and be boozing and drinking and dancing no respecters of anything you know and then suddenly all melt away into the distance again but super a breath of air you know yeah. so how do you think climbing has enriched your life then Climbing has enriched my life greatly. You know, but I started young and I've gone on doing it for sixty-odd years or whatever as an active climber, you know. And I still think of it and I have to go walk up Arthur's Seat or the Pentlands just to remind me of the quality and just just laying hands on 
sort of pristine rock is, sends a thrill, you know. And snow on the hills, of course, does the same. So it stays with you. Let me talk a bit more about Robin, actually, before we finish. Uh, what was what was Robin like as Robin Smith like as a person? He was uh, he was quite a strange chap. Uh, he was incredibly gifted intellectually, really good, and. I think he, he, he found difficulty in making very close friends initially, and I think mountaineering must have helped him a great deal in that. He was very shy, but he was a climber from the word go. I mean, he had his uh, teacher or mentor, was Archie Henry, who was a teacher at Watson's, and Archie was one of my climbing partners, and he was a climbing guy for many years before me and he used to have a motorbike and a motorbike as a teacher in these days into a posh boys school and was like uh, a magnet and he thought who is it who's this guy he goes climbing mountains you know no one he never said that to them and he never encouraged them to do it but out of that bunch of kids came and uh, he came away and he, he didn't go with Archie I mean he came independently because the bus meets were there you know and he just showed a startling brilliance you know from day one he was on the crags anywhere so he was very talented both intellectually and as a climber he, he had a good eye for a, a line and he also was terrible for finding out all the other people's eyes or lines for things, you know. So nothing, where we used to be comfortable about doing something, we'll do that, that you had to pull your finger out and get it done before he came to it, because he sniffed them out like nobody's business. Was he ambitious, do you think? Is ambitious the right word? I don't know. Driven, maybe, I don't know. Driven, yes. Driven, he was driven to be the best. I mean, from the very beginning, his attitude was that he would be one of the best. Now, it wasn't it wasn't competitively like beating everybody else. He was just going to go where others hadn't gone. He was going to open new avenues and climbs and things like that. He had that feeling, could do anything, and he learned mostly climbing on the Salisbury Crags in Edinburgh. And then when he went away with his pal Jimmy Cruikshank and that, and learned about a bit more climbing. And then he took over the, the boys, the curry lads. He joined the, with them, you know, we were another great explosion of talent. I mean, Jimmy Stenhouse was one of the curry lads and he survives, but we can't, I can't contact him. I would love to be able to speak to him. He kept marrying women with kids, and he ended up with a huge family, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he disappeared. He was, he was way down south somewhere. But 
Jimmy was the hardest nut of the curry lads. He was really something. And I enjoyed a lot of good clients with Jimmy. Okay. Can you remember when you heard the news of uh, Robin Smith's death? Yeah. What, I did. How did he hear? I saw it on a banner, you know, these paperboards. And it came out of, I think, so I've probably just come out of the pub at Danny Milne's and I saw this board and it just said, Climber dies, you know. And I, oh! And uh, the news was broken just almost within an hour of that. That was, that, I was gutted by that because, as I said to you, he had something very, you know how... It, Brown and Willens, for example, yeah. took over rock climbing. Just incredible. It just came out of the blue. Although there was great climbers before, these guys came with a whole new attitude and climb and climbing ability. And he did the same uh, with climbing in Scotland. He he didn't need to be taught or told. He just went there and did it, you know. It's something in them, I think. And there'll be lots of them in the future. But the trouble is they're getting encumbered by gear and things to stop them falling when they should be quite happy to climb long distances before they ever fall off, you know. Whether they hit the ground or not, they shouldn't do it. You know, that's my attitude. I feel that the sport has gone too technical. I mean, uh, you can achieve things, but you'd have to be one of these wonderful solo climbers who do anything, you know. And there are a few of them who stick by these rules now. That's asking too much for the majority of people, but they shouldn't be encouraged to climb things that they can't do without having adequate safety. Mm -hmm. That's an old man talking. <laughs> so, you know, you said, you know, obviously climbing has enriched your life greatly. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's given you much, obviously given you much joy, but it obviously must have brought you some sadness as well. I, I, some people, particularly non-climbers, might ask, you know, is it worth it, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would, I would never consider that anything I ever did in climbing was not worthwhile. I mean, it's just, it's been the most beautiful experience. I, I only went to climbing with my, I met a guy once, I'd been, I started hiking around the Highlands in uh, nineteen forty. 47 and 48, just hiking with a bag, you know, in a tent. And in one of these trips I was, I met, I'd gone along the the Anacher Cree on the, the, uh, the road down to Sky, you know, one of these big ridges. And I, I got into kind of trouble not to abandon, throw my rucksack off my back, but or else I would go with it, you know, in one of these rocks at the side, because I was dying of thirst. It was 1947, a wonderful summer, oh, an incredible summer. Every day was just sun, sun, and sun. And how old were you now? About 16 or 17. 
and I was going down, you know, I was going down to get some water further off the ridge. And of course I just started to lose balance on this wee craggy bit I was on, so I abandoned the rucksack. And the rucksack just went pounding away down the tent, the Dixies and all the rest of it, away down the hill. So I had to pursue it as fast as picking up all the bits and wondering what the hell I'd lost, you know. I didn't even have a stove then, I just lit fires and cooked on fires and that. But I did these these things for a couple of summers, and then I met climbers. And it was, I met them in Sky, and they were they had been doing some big walk or something. They were knackered, and I was I just walked round about twenty miles of coastline, you know. And I joined in the back with them, and I was way after them, and we're all falling all over the place like one of these sort of desert movies where you see guys dying, you know, with the heat and. So that and, and I found that people actually went up and climbed, and oh, that's interesting. I think I must have a look at that. And then I met this guy Bill Cole, who was my friend in town, and he was a good one for getting information. And that's how I made it. He brought uh, books and climbing from the university libraries, and then we went climbing a lot. His mother bought him a plowshare for a rope for. Uh, sort of 80 feet of hairy rope and we climbed on that uh, on the bull and everywhere you know amazing excellent I think, that, I think that's, that's good that was, that was wonderful